You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. A crow walked to me, black claws carefully treading in the snow. It was the woman from the air, from Michaelmas. She lifted one wing, as large as my arm, and used her beak to pry loose a feather. She offered it to me. A pool of blood appeared in the snow. Suddenly I was sitting up and the book was in my lap. The snow was solid beneath me. Sign and you may sup, said Hensel. I was at eye level with the pig on the spit. It stared at me wildly. I could sense nothing now but the agonizing aroma of its crackling fat. And then I felt as if I tipped backward. But it wasn't me, it was the pig spinning on his spit. Both of us rolled our eyes. The forest flickered, completely black for a moment, and then lit by the fire again. In despair, I dipped the quill in the pool of blood. He pushed a kiss into my mouth. With their wings, the crows stroked me. The pages of the book fluttered impatiently. A drop of blood landed on the page. She's as good as signed, said Hensel, and I realized anew who these creatures of the forest were. No, I shouted. I know how to write my name, and I have not signed. Yet, as I stared down, the blot lengthened and thinned. Soon it was a G, and then the U and the D. It was spelling out my name. No, I shouted, and slammed the book closed. Everything vanished. It was pure darkness without the pig's fire. I held my breath and listened, but no one moved in the dark. I was profoundly alone. Then I saw a basket in front of me, loaded with meat. I stood up. I was unsure if I had signed or not. Hensel, I whispered to the forest. I knelt and dipped both hands and fed myself, keeping my mouth close to the basket, gorging as fast as I could. The meat was hot and filled with juice. I fed with frenzy in disbelief of the taste that was so extreme and so good. I closed my eyes to better savor the fibers mashing between my teeth, threading into the spaces where teeth used to be. The meat was so succulent it was as if I could drink it. Grease filmed my lips. I cared not what the book said. It was not as real as the taste of pig in my mouth. Erica Mailman is the author of Women of Ill Fame. Her new novel is The Witch's Trinity. Thank you for joining me, Erica. Thank you, Rick. Erica, this book has a really interesting background in your own personal history. Yes. While I was in the very beginning stages of writing this novel about a woman accused of witchcraft in medieval Germany, I got an email from my mother that let me know uh, she sent me to a website that was about an ancestor of ours, Mary Bliss Parsons, who was accused of witchcraft in 1600s Massachusetts. And, and tell us a little bit about how you uh, explored the history of this ancestor, because it's not our typical thought of the way witch trials went. Yeah, this was a, um, a pretty interesting case because she went uh, before the tribunal twice and both times was acquitted. And we don't often hear about women sort of getting off the hook for witchcraft. It sort of seems like once you're accused, that's it. But she fought and had the support of many members of the community and was 
sort of an affluent person in the community, which I think helped quite a bit. And I was acquitted both times and died in her 80s, presumably of old age. Well, now tell us about what brought forth these accusations of witchcraft, and because it plays into your novel, and it's, again, not what we expect. It's pretty fascinating stuff. <laughs> yeah. The things she was accused of were, were similar to the things that the character in the book faces. Uh, accusations about farm animals dying, disrupting the cycle of fertility. So my ancestor was accused of killing a newborn baby. And in The Witch's Trinity, one of the characters is accused of having caused a neighbor's repeated miscarriages, losing babies in utero several times. One thing that I, I really liked uh, about this novel was your prose, and it's rather visionary, and one of the things that this ties back again to your your ancestor, there are, there are thoughts that some of these witch trials, including you mentioned the, the uh, one of Mary Goody, uh, might have been uh, the hysteria and the visions that people experience might have been due to ergot poisoning. Yeah, that was really interesting. A um, researcher, I, I believe in the 70s, she was specifically looking at the Salem trials and felt that this fungus in the rye that landed in people's daily bread was uh, causing these hallucinations that uh, made people believe that, that they were under the spell of witchcraft. Well, let's talk a little bit about your novel. It's set in the 16th century in Germany, and I have to ask you, when your ancestor was tried in the 17th century in America, what <laughs> made you go back, ratchet back a century, and go across the water to deepest, darkest Germany? And it is deep and dark. <laughs> it is very deep and dark. You know, I was thinking a lot about deep, dark forest. I grew up in Vermont, and so I knew, you know, exactly what the forest feels like when it's getting dark and filling with snow. I am of German heritage. I wanted to explore my own sort of family background through this research. And most importantly, the witch trials were really sort of centered in Germany. I think a lot of people don't know that. But this book, the Malleus Maleficarum, which was the witch hunting Bible, was written by two German men who were uh, blessed by the Pope in their witch hunting activities. And they roamed the German countryside helping communities execute their witches, locate and execute their witches. So it really was a clear choice for me to set it in Germany. One of the things that, that struck me about your book, there are so many modern parallels, and one of the things that, that you don't expect to find in a book about witches is technology. And, and yet it's there in your book, and I think the, tech, the primary technology that really launches the, the witch trials mm -hmm. was, the, was the printing press. Right. Uh, the printing press uh, was invented by Gutenberg uh, pretty close to the time that this Malleus Maleficarum first appeared uh, in 1486. And that was allowing dissemination of the book in unprecedented numbers. People were able to, to get it to all different hamlets across Germany and, and make sure everybody had that book to, as a guide for them to, to hunt down their witches and figuring out who was causing trouble in their community. And an another form of technology that also uh, is of import to your book is, is agricultural technology because the witch trials, at least in the novel, are really driven by famine. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is uh, one way that this book is similar to political situations today is the need to scapegoat people when things aren't going right. And this, this community has suffered several harvest seasons that didn't go right. 
and everybody's looking for somebody to blame because in this kind of culture you can't just accept the randomness of bad fate you, you need to find a reason why god god is punishing you and your family and did you research the actual climate of Germany during the years in which your your novel takes place? I did take a look at uh, at the history of, of those sorts of things. And plague and famines were just cyclical during these Middle Ages in Germany. So I felt pretty free to, to pick a year and go with it because they were just constantly cycling through bad harvests and plague. Your novel really features a, a clash between, uh, underneath it, and it's not really obvious, but it's really a clash between two religions. Definitely. The the old pagan ways and, and the newer Catholicism. And uh, the when those come to a head where people need to make a choice, uh, that's the intersection where my book takes place. And what I found that the rituals that you had described in this novel, and there were a lot of them, the pagan rituals were really fascinating. The fertility rituals, uh, could you talk about some of those? Describe some of those to us and tell us how you found out about them. There are a number of pagan rituals in the novel, and many of them I felt free to invent I, in keeping, certainly, with how I, I thought these pagan people might feel. So, for instance, before they eat meat, they make a gesture with their hands to thank the beast that provided the meat by using four fingers to sort of represent the legs of the beast. And they turn them upside down to show that the animal has been felled and killed for eating. Including the runes, where I thought was a really interesting aspect of this novel. The runes are a pretty interesting old method of divination. And Nowadays, people are still doing runes. In fact, I was able to purchase some runes off of eBay. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was giving them away at readings. Uh, so they're, they're either made of stone or of wood um, because they need to be elemental forces of nature helping you divine the future. And in my book, they're, they're using twigs that have been carved upon, which I did find reference to in my research. And that's an idea that the, the growth of the wood is is attached to the earth and is a way of helping you know what the future is going to be. So you scatter them on the snow and pick up three, and those three are the ones that help you see the future. The beliefs of these people are that witches could be either men or women because the, the rune caster in the, in the book is, is a man. And could you talk about the, the men who were accused of being witches? And from your research, you, you mentioned this. Yes, absolutely. A lot of people, you know, the stereotype is that it's an, an old woman and, and that's it. But uh, in many countries, for instance, Scandinavian countries, their men were accused of witchcraft just as often as women were and sometimes in greater numbers. And also during different time periods, there were, uh, you would see prevalence of, of men. And a lot of these old medieval woodcuts, uh, the, the people being depicted as witches are men. And so it's, Certainly, the misogynistic uh, heartthrob of, of this uh, witch hunting is, is about women, but men were not um, scot-free. And in the witch's trinity, the, the man who casts runes, certainly he's doing something that's sort of witchy, but because of his status in the community, that accusation never wends its way towards him. 
one of the things I like about this novel is the way that the characters use the social structure to eliminate those people who are kind of in the way by accusing them of witchcraft. It's a really fascinating look at the way we marginalize those who are no longer useful and also very relevant, of course, to today. Yes. The actual literal trigger for this novel was listening to audio tapes by a history professor at UCLA named Teo Ruiz. And at the end of the lectures is a tape specifically on the witch craze. It's called The Terror of History Overall. And he talked about the idea that uh, sometimes people might accuse family members of witchcraft because they have sort of grown out of being useful to the family. They're not helping put food on the table. And in fact, they're eating the food that others put on the table. And and so the accusation of witchcraft is a way to get one less mouth eating your food, whether it's a conscious decision or subconscious. And I was really horrified by that idea. And I remember I, I was listening to the tapes in my car, popped the tape out of the deck and just was grabbing my steering wheel, just thinking, what kind of hell do you live in that that's an, an option for you? And I've learned through my research that oftentimes if a woman didn't have a male kin member um, to protect her, she was definitely far more likely to face the accusation and be executed. Kinship is something that really helps protect women during these medieval periods. If you have a husband or a son or a father uh, who can sort of keep the rest of the community at arm's length, you're, you're much better off. And in fact, in my novel, the character Yost, who is the main character, Gouda's son, he is, in fact, protecting her on an ongoing basis and has tried to protect her friend, who is brought to be burned at the stake. And I knew I had to get him sort of out of town somehow so that <laughs> that protective veneer would be would be ruined. And so... I was inspired by Bruegel's painting, The Hunters in the Snow. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yes, painting? yes. It's a gentleman coming back from the woods, uh, and, and the town is very vacant, and the inn sign is hanging crooked. And I just really loved that painting, and, and I had looked at it quite a bit. And that was what inspired me to say, oh, I can send him away with the other hunters on a hunting party to help try to end this famine, and that's also a way for... Gouda to now be exposed. One of the things that yeah, I think you do really well in this novel is you write really uh, beautiful and terrorizing a visionary prose. The 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 characters, the uh, reality is constantly open to question in this novel. We never know how much we're getting somebody's hallucination or whether stuff is really happening. It's re- it's very frightening and, and unsettling as a horror novel in that respect. Could you talk about creating some of those more visionary horror passages, particularly the, the, the witch's Sabbath that you describe? It's really, it's frightening. Lots of the details from that, from that witch's Sabbath are, are from research. The idea of uh, there's dogs whose tails are tied to lamps, and when the orgy begins, they slap the dogs on the, on, the, on the butt and they run, which makes the lamps douse in the snow, and then suddenly it's dark. And I was inspired by the turn of the screw because when I was in college, a professor taught a class, Cedric Bryant, where... For about two weeks straight, we talked about the plotting of Turn of the Screw, where you're not sure whether the, the governess is is really seeing ghosts 
or if she's insane. And there's equal evidence on either side for that. And so I tried to make it unclear whether Gouda is really participating in these witches' Sabbaths or if she is having senile dementia and um, is making this up in her mind. Ultimately, at the end, I felt like it wasn't fair to leave it open like that because although my Mm -hmm. book is a work of fiction, you know, many, many women faced these same circumstances and, and died in really horrible ways. And so I thought... I need to make it right at the ending. I need to clear that up. So Gouda at the end really searches her mind and comes to a conclusion about whether she has seen these things or not. One of the things I thought was was interesting about your book is the way that we see there are perceptions of many different kinds of disease. There are hunger, famine, infertility, Alzheimer's, ergot poisoning, heart arrhythmia, a lot of different diseases that we... Uh, understand from a modern point of view, but you do a really interesting job of painting the way that they're perceived by peop- by a pre-medical society. Mm. And, and it provides a, a fascinating look at uh, how people understood themselves and the world. Yeah, this is a time period where the the medical thinking of the day is, is about the four humors, you know, you've got too much bile in your body or too much blood or, or things like that dating back to, uh, to Gallen's theories in the Middle Ages. And certainly, as I said before, you just can't accept that it's, it's random in this, in this worldview that your heart stops or that you're seeing visions. You really have to trace it back to either God or the devil being responsible for what you're experiencing. And, and as well, I, I, the, the perception of Alzheimer's was, was really, and, and aging itself was, was really interesting because we are hyper aware now of what the aging process is and, and what happens to your body. And, and Aguda is not is a little bit aware. So it's interesting when she actually perceives that at one point she says, my my mind is old and wiry just like my hair. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really interesting perception. Gouda is one of the few people of her generation left. And so that she doesn't really have anybody to look to to understand what aging is, is like. And the life expectancy during this period is very much shorter than we have today. I, I think... F- if you reached your mid-40s, you were pretty much doing well and could expect that it was going to end soon. So she's really somebody who's sort of lived past when she should have died. And she makes note of that in the novel. You know, my husband's dead. Everybody else my age is gone. And she doesn't really have anybody else to look to to know what aging is, how it's supposed to go. On the other end of the of the cycle, we, we find out why sex is evil. <laughs> because it, it has a, the great potential of putting another mouth to feed at a table when in times of famine, that just can't be tolerated. I didn't even think about that. That That's interesting. Uh, you know, the book is a lot about fertility cycles and, and making sure that things are right in terms of the next generation comes and, and we need births to happen among animals and humans. But you're right. It's actually uh, detrimental for if the community is already so small that they're fighting over scraps of food, you don't really want another baby to come into the world. It's an interesting angle on it. You, I think, 
deliberately cover a, a variety of kind of paranormal and supernatural experiences um, in this book. And we understand now more what is the genesis of these experiences, but you provide the 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 perceptions of the Middle Ages, and one of them is the the what is called sleep paralysis, when somebody feels that there's somebody squatting on their chest, and, and this is now in recent years these uh, these experiences result in people believing they've been you know abducted or worked upon by aliens, and and back then it was it was they were being seduced by witches. Mm-hmm. There's uh, incub- incubi and succubi, which are these spirits that will sit upon your chest at night and uh, and have sexual relations with you. And my character is afraid at one point uh, a cat jumps onto her bed and jumps onto her body, and she's frightened that that is a cat sent by the devil to to have its way with her. And certainly there are so many things that nowadays... We kind of turn on the bedside table light and dispel the scary feelings. And, and there's a real safety, I think, to the mere fact that we can have illumination. And if you're frightened in your house at night, you turn on the television. And technology helps us feel secure. And to these people, the woods were just so impenetrably dark. You know, if you were to step out outside at night, you have your your flame that the wind could blow out. And... Uh, you're just so much more prey to whatever might be out there, visible or invisible. There's a real feeling of, of vulnerability to everybody for everybody in this village. It's a and it's a very small village too. And, and you mentioned this as well when you talked about your ancestors. Just the small number of people plays an important part in uh, making bringing about these kind of. Uh, episodes of mass hysteria because everybody knows everybody everybody knows everybody really well and everybody knows what roles you're supposed to play so if you're somebody who's a little bit outside of society as my character is by living too long outside of her usefulness everybody takes note and there's a sense of you know you need to either be doing what you need to be doing or be gone and in my research I I found some mention of how the population growth in Europe really had a lot to do with uh, some villages having their witch hunts. Because if you're a very small community and there's one person there who is having some kind of mental issue and isn't doing the food getting, isn't marrying and having children the way that they should be, everybody sort of looks out for them because it's just one person in a small group and people will help that person find food. However, as population grows and cities grow in Europe, the sense of responsibility diminishes as the population grows. And so suddenly you're walking down the lane and this person is accosting you, begging for food. And instead of the kindness that you might offer if you were in a small village, you feel put upon. And then add on top of that the idea of famine. And if you give this person food, you're taking it away from your own family suddenly it becomes this person is a problem to you and whether subconsciously or consciously you might start to think huh after I talked to her I fell down and really hurt my knee and scraped it up and and I wasn't able to do the work in my own house that I I should have done so it must be her fault she must be a witch and then the accusations start or to the contrary you give that person the bread and then you feel resentful, which is, you know, either guilt for not giving the bread or resentfulness for giving it, those are both really uncomfortable 
emotions that might lead to a witchcraft accusation down the road. And that reminds me in a way, one thing I, as I read this novel, I thought this isn't a novel about good versus evil. This is a novel mm. about evil versus evil. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really bad for, for the character Ermeltrude. Um, she does this despicable thing of, of accusing a family member of witchcraft, but she's also got two very young children at home and she's trapped in this horrible situation. And if she truly believes that her mother-in-law is a witch, if she truly, truly in the depths of her heart believes it, then how can she be thought of as a bad person? I think there's a real gray area there. And it's interesting, too. Uh, one of the things that you do a great job of is is demonstrating the power of the church and the way the church demonstrated power. Uh, when that when the friar arrives in town, he is looks well-fed. Mm. He talks about how he has had cakes, and my character thinks, cakes, you have flour to make sweets. We haven't had sweets here for years. And he he comes from a position of power, of being well-fed, and in fact, he is rewarding people who help him on the witch hunting mission with food. So it creates a even more of a propulsion for people to turn on their neighbors. In addition to the, the built-in uh, desire to adhere more to the Catholic Church, which is trying to replace the pagan rituals and, and the pagan religion itself. Right. And I, sh I should hasten to say that uh, the Catholic Church and the Church in general is, is not the only, they're not the only bad guys in the witch hunts in medieval Europe. Uh, secular courts were, were just as eager to persecute and execute their witches for some reason the catholic church they get kind of <laughs> scapegoated for it and in, in large part that's because the pope was very behind it as i said before he blessed the the authors of the malleus maleficarum and was really helping spur them to make sure that the the conspiracy of witches was quelled people at this time really believed that there was this worldwide conspiracy of hundreds of thousands of witches that were going to bring the world down well, that sounds pretty familiar today as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Could you talk about the Malleus Maleficarum? Did you read it? I did. Uh, I, I read it from cover to cover, and it's a very sickening read. It's so misogynistic, so hateful, and so ridiculously ignorant. But it was written by these two men, two friars, who absolutely believed that they were doing the world a benefit by writing this. And it's very legal in language. It's uh, set up sort of like a, like a trial itself. It provides the questions that you might ask a witch, and depending upon her answer, how you might then proceed. When to use torture, how to use torture. Uh, so it's chilling in its sort of logic, although the logic is, of course, upside down and ridiculous. There's an interest in this novel in legalese, Gouda gets caught up in the legalese, the devil's legalese, <laughs> and, and in in the in the Christian church's legalese as well. And, and one of the things I thought was really interesting was the 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 logic loop traps of religious faith. And specifically, this happens when the friar asks Gouda if he condemned Kuna in error, because either way she replies to that, she's guilty. Absolutely. 
Gouda is pretty aware that she can't criticize the friar in his choice to execute her friend. She knows, although she is very clear that her friend is innocent, she must toe the line and act as if he did the right thing. Meanwhile, trying to figure out, you know, her mind is racing furiously. How can I, what can I say to him to save my own skin? And of course, the character is unsure whether or not she is a witch. She accepts that there are witches. She doesn't think she is one, doesn't believe that her best friend Kuna was one. And yet she's trapped in this world where there are witches. She's just got to figure out who they are. Uh, And one way we figure out who witches are is by torture. And But one of the things that you mention in here, I have to ask, is the pair something that you discovered? Unfortunately, the pair is an actual torture device. And Amnesty International created this wonderful slash horrible exhibit that traveled many years ago called the, the Torture Exhibit. And I actually saw a pair there, which is a device that goes into a woman's vagina and is, is opened inside which would it's sharp and would slice her and that's just one of many many dozens and probably hundreds of ways that women were were tortured in this time period I made a really specific choice I read the research I was haunted by it there are things I learned that I really wish I could unlearn and get those images out of my head really horrible things were done to women So I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to use torture in the book because I thought, who can read that? It would just be too exquisitely painful. So I kind of did the reader the favor of I did all the learning and then I just provided a a taste of what these characters might face. And Gouda is threatened with the pair. And I felt like that was a good way to show these things did happen to some people, but I'm not going to show it happening to this particular character. Even mentioning the potential of it, you don't need to show it to happen. Even the, even the the, the concept itself is so incredibly horrific. It it's really horrific. Per, it's it's really pretty much um, sends most readers. I think will be quite pale and shaking just by the yeah. And and it's very sad. And it's interesting too that the many. Uh, modern day parallels of the the torture the way torture is used in this book um there are some rewards because the when they're in the witch's tower they actually get fed don't they they do they they get a few radishes which is certainly not grand fare but it's it's something it's better than nothing which is what gouda had been experiencing at home so there's this strange situation where the the friar is He's kind, and he's also unbelievably cruel at the same time. He wants to do it legally. You know, when you have a prisoner, you do, in fact, feed them. So he feeds these women who have been accused of witchcraft. But at the end, he will do what he needs to do to ruin the evil that's embedded in them. And and the way he discovers this evil is by torture. And this is a, uh, once again, gets us to a lesson about the confession, which is, of course, central to the Christian faith, but maybe not uh, as uh, inspired by the, the friar. The Malleus Maleficarum talks about how to use torture, and I was just leafing through it again last night um, to sort of remind myself of some things. And there are interesting uh, methods where you will torture somebody, but then 
they understood that sometimes people will confess to things that they didn't do because they're being tortured. So you wait a little while and then you torture them again to just to make sure, which is, you know, that logic is really terrible because obviously there were no witches. People are confessing to things just to make the pain stop. And yet these authors try to figure out, well, we'll wait a little while and introduce it again. There's not really much you can say to get off the hook. And yet there's my ancestor who did get off the hook. And I think it plays into her her status in the community. She was relatively affluent. Her husband was one of the town leaders. You know, the age of reason eventually came and, and helped these these villages start to realize, huh, I think we're executing people who are innocent. <laughs> well, it in it as it, it hasn't come everywhere, though, because even today there are many witch trials in Africa and many accusations of witchcraft and people are executed or are killed by mobs all the time. Yeah, it's extraordinary to me that there's still this belief in witchcraft happening and people being killed for it. One of the, the phenomena that you examine that I find really interesting is a mass hysteria, the way it works, and the way the, the pendulum swings back and forth almost instantly when things get well again. Mm. Right. This, towards the end of the book, the, the famine is, is not cured, but meat is found, and suddenly everybody wants to be pals again. And, and I'm proud of my character in that she doesn't succumb to that and accept the smiles of the people who are ready to hoot at her being killed. Uh, she stands her ground and removes herself from that society. When you're writing, were writing this book, I'm curious, what kind of book did you think you were writing? I, I'm because it's it, it's fascinating combination of historical observation and surreal horror and modern day parallels. I think I was trying to write a story that would bring attention to a time period that women suffered. I. I think I had sort of a feminist mission, and I wanted this time period looked at a little more closely. Why were you interested in in a, a feminist mission, and as particularly in the feminist mission of the, the witchcraft trials? I've always been interested in, in stories of strong women. My first book is about a, a woman who is a gold rush prostitute because the culture doesn't allow her to have any other kind of job other than working in a in a mill, which she doesn't want to do, being trapped against a machine that could cut off her finger at any given moment. And here in, in medieval Europe, over a period of 400 years, women were accused, and men, I should say, were accused of witchcraft and tortured and executed. 400 years is a really long time, and I thought, I want to cast attention on that. That's twice as long as the United States has been around. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> it's pretty yeah. remarkable. There was actually a couple scenes that just... All I could think about were, was the McCarthy witch trials. Mm. <laughs> were, 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 did you look at any of that kind of history as well to inform more modern history, to inform the way you wrote about more ancient history? Uh, I did not look at the McCarthy trials, but um, I was thinking about scapegoating, just that general idea of things go bad, we need to blame somebody. And I was thinking in particular um, about after 9-11 when there were all those reports of people who were either Arab or looked Arab and were being um, 
hassled and in some instances killed. And I just thought, well, that's an example of scapegoating that literally happened to us a few years ago. And people were on fire to find the people who were to blame. We've been speaking with Erica Mailman. Her new novel is The Witch's Trinity. Thank you for joining me, Erica. Thank you so much, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.